they showed that, okay, this is how you would analyze behavior. This is how you change a behavior. And this is how you predict behaviors. And uh, for instance, there's some really good treatments. If you have anxiety mm -hmm. uh, attacks, panic disorder, there's a treatment that is almost 100% if you can comply with the treatment, and most do, uh, it's super effective. So there are methods to change behaviors and manage fears, but also to just become more skilled at something. So I could see from early on, okay, this is how you would actually build skills. This is how you would teach skills to mm -hmm. others. I think that was huge for me. Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, a podcast making creators, entrepreneurs, and idealists in the deep tech space accessible by highlighting the stories and pulling their ideas from the lab into the real world. I'm Philip Stürmer, and on the show today, and on the show today, Martin Hassler-Hallstedt using cognitive behavioral theory to help young kids learn maths, improve their life, and increase a country's GDP. If you look at the majority of education systems, you'll notice that there is little to no change between today's kids' experiences and the parents or grandparents. Yet, the rest of the world never stopped evolving. Our old education systems are just not suited anymore to cope with the requirements of the modern world, especially when it is estimated that 65% of today's children will have jobs that don't yet exist. One way to fix this is by bringing modern tech into the classroom and individualizing the learning process. Not only does one gather information about every student, but it also increases their well-being and performance. One of the people doing that is Martin Hassler-Hallstedt, turning his psychology PhD project into a maths learning app called Count on Me for five to seven years. Why maths? Well, maths is the best predictor for later academic success, even more so than reading comprehension. But his path didn't always seem to guide him towards maths. I enjoy school a lot. I uh, wasn't a math fan all the way, maybe in the beginning, the first grades, mm -hmm. seven, eight, nine year olds. Then I realized Marlin in my, was the best girl or the best student in my class. She always beat me to the math test. <laughs> but I, otherwise I think I was doing well. And, uh, but never felt like really maths was the big thing, but uh, I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. So now I'm developing a maths app, teaching young kids, seven, eight, nine year olds. Yeah. Uh, to learn the basics. But I think the, it's for many reasons. It's it's a lot of, it's very global. You can actually scale it very well to different countries. Yeah. And also there's a beauty to teach it because it's very um, binary. You did you, like, did it come naturally to you or did you, like if, for me, for example, I, I cruised by with average grades and my parents were reasonably happy with it mm -hmm. while other kids were not really forced but, but taught by their parents to, to study properly and then obviously had respectively better grades. My parents never, uh, almost never helped me in school. Um, I think I have four older siblings mm -hmm. and they were doing well at school and I think for some reason we were just like, it, it worked out well. We were a happy family study-wise I think, so you pretty easy to learn and but still it was, uh, I had some help of them. I still recall when my dad said, I can't help you with that. Uh, or maybe it's plus you should use. And I think it was like 17 year old. It was a pretty complex question. And then I realized he can't help me anymore <laughs> with anything. And until then he had helped me pretty little, I would say. Mom with some things. Yeah. And then after school or during school, 
what what do you recall from like maybe your your favorite and your your, your least favorite teacher um i think my favorite teacher early on was ulla uh very a large <laughs> um, ground school teacher and she was super friendly i remember giving me tests in english and then she or the class she would say did everyone get that or should i repeat it <laughs> she was super friendly just well caring i think my second uh, best one was actually when i was in germany that's mm -hmm. when i really got my first crush on learning at scale, I would say, <laughs> because I was at the uh, uh, gymnasium in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the rural area. And I stayed for one year being 16, 16, 17 years old. And I had these teachers who were just super excellent. And you actually got in depth with every topic mm -hmm. when you were learning German. Uh, it was super hard for me because I was Swedish, but you read the original things written by Martin Luther yep. <laughs> uh, back uh, 400 years ago and that was just and then you analyzed it with a model the school in Sweden wasn't like that and we had a history test that took me four hours to do and it was one of the most best one of the funniest things I've ever done because it was you get to read the original sources about Bismarck yep. how he planned for the international governance of Europe in the 1870s and I didn't haven't read that and then I should be able to apply what he wrote in text in that test that I had and actually understand make some draw some connections or conclusions about it about the political development later on and that was just fascinating to see that okay you can do this kind of learning I, I haven't experienced that in Sweden before or later I would say so it was more like learning during the test somehow yeah even learning yeah. through a test but the teaching overall was just excellent at uh, at that school yeah so I credit the German school system for being super interested in, okay. in education, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> shouldn't say that the German system is better than the Swedish. I have to have a little knowledge these days. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit more rigid and it's called it old school. Yeah, it's, yeah. Also, yeah, it's not uh, very much technology. I know that. That's yeah. why we're not selling to <laughs> Germany <laughs> at this point. We haven't translated it to German. We went for English. Yeah. And then after that test directly, you decided to to study psychology and go for learning theory or was it only at some point later when you were closer to your final exam? Some point later. Um, I finished uh, and then went to Uppsala to study uh, religion mm -hmm. or theology actually. I realized it was fun but the people around weren't really my <laughs> crew. And why, then I, why theology? Um, I, I was uh, part of the Swedish state church so mm -hmm. I was uh, I went to mass and I, I enjoyed being I was a pretty religious person these days, those days. Not so anymore. I still okay. have some kind of faith, but not practicing it very much. Okay. Then I met some psychologists. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what happened when I started studying in Uppsala. First theology, I started literature, um, and then just uh, I started the law school. And mm -hmm. that was awful. I quit after three months. <laughs> I liked things no one else liked, <laughs> yeah. like uh, how you build up a state and how you legislate mm -hmm. when you start a state. <laughs> no one else, they want to do business uh, uh, legislation or you know, yeah. business. Uh, the yeah. money bringing part. Exactly. Yeah. So I had, uh, and, but then, uh, and then I divorced with my, at that time, fiance looked for a living and I found a living in a condo with uh, three uh, uh, three psychology students mm -hmm. who talked about cognitive behavior therapy. And that was new to me. I was interested in psychology, um, 
but they never studied it before. And they were just, that was so uh, fun because it, it was apl applied. You could actually use these things, behavior analysis or the being cognitive behavior therapy. That is behavior they, therapy. How did they explain it to you? They showed that, okay, this is how you would analyze behavior. This is how you change behavior. And this is how you predict behaviors. And uh, for instance, there's some really good treatments. If you have anxiety mm -hmm. uh, attacks, panic disorder, there's a treatment that is almost 100% if you can comply with the treatment, and most do, uh, it's super effective. So there are methods to change behaviors and manage fears, but also to just become more skilled at something. So I could see from early on, okay, this is how you would actually build skills. This is how you would teach skills to others. Mm -hmm. I think that was huge for me. And later on, I think I had another crush with machine learning, but that's just too hard <laughs> and I'm too old uh, to, you have to spend many years on that. I did a little work on that with my, in my PhD to yep. see, to predict which students had a long-term effect and which didn't have a long-term effect, which was nice. Mm -hmm. Still not published. Still not published. <laughs> <laughs> Are you working on it or? And uh, not these days. We had a few students from uh, Lund University come to us and test the latest uh, developments in machine learning, mm -hmm. uh, analyzing our data. But it turned out it's not at that point really where it makes a difference for the learner. It's going to be for sure, but it's in the long run. Uh, in the short run, it, AI in education has been overestimated. In the long run, it probably could be underestimated as usual. Yeah. <laughs> and then... During your coursework, you like where was the point that you wanted to do a PhD? Or because for me, it was like this constant back and forth over five years, basically on a on a three month rhythm, whether I want to do one or not, or yes or no, basically like a cat deciding what to go inside or outside or inside or outside. <laughs> yeah, or should I be <laughs> in between? Uh, for me, I did a PhD not to become a researcher, but to to get uh, the CBT app out like the, okay. the cognitive behavior method used in learning to teach something. And I stumbled upon mathematics because it turned out, according to research that there, uh, someone provided me with, that it's the math is the most important predictor for later learning. It's even more important than early reading skills. So if, mm -hmm. if you look at five and six-year-olds, and these are large studies, uh, up to 50,000 people in different countries, it's been replicated. And uh, you can see that if you're five years old, six years old, and you take the math test, you take tests of your concentration ability mm -hmm. uh, and also reading skills and others, and then you follow up until age of 13, 14, the strongest predictor for later school achievement when you're 13, 14, that's actually math. It's even stronger than reading. And from, from five years old. Yeah, if you look at that. So that was just blew my mind and I realized, okay, if I want to make an impact using this method yeah. within education, I have to go for the most important one. And also under um, explored, I would say. Reading, there's a lot more research done, have been a lot more research done in reading compared to mathematics. Yeah. And still maths, if you look at the GDP growth of a country, 35 to 50% of GDP growth in a country historically has been explained by science and maths scores. Mm -hmm. That's huge. I mean, if you want to, so if you want to build an economy, which China successful did, which the Southeast Asian countries did, yep. you have to build from the bottom up with the, uh, with the most important subject and even most important subject is math, according to research.
why do you think there are so many people? Because I think there are also a few papers that basically go into asking five or six years old if they like maths, and then most of them say, yeah, it's absolutely amazing, which may also be attributed to them be five years old and I guess you could ask them essentially anything what they like and they will cheer for it <laughs> um, but then if you go down the road or also just from the own examples like everyone at some point or most people are like oh maths is absolutely terrible yeah. I don't get it yeah and that is the the sad story of it there's something about the teaching uh, in mathematics that doesn't work do you know what uh, it's a one-size-fits-all problem that's what yeah. everyone says uh, but it's also you have to be cautious about the math anxiety that is around. We made a poll with 2,000 British parents recently. 47% of British parents have uh, math anxiety. So, so it's, it's, being afraid of their kid coming home and asking them... Yeah, and 83% are actually afraid of their kids coming home and asking them to do math <laughs> work with them, so it's even more. But, uh, and they're concerned that their math anxiety will you know, be contagious, and it is, yep. <laughs> research shows to some extent. Um, so I think we, our message at the Caribbean, my company, is to show that everyone's a maths person. I mean, of course, everyone is not going to be a complete genius at maths, but that's mm -hmm. not the, I mean, you have to need uh, get the, the crucial ingredient, uh, skills in mathematics. Then you can do artistry even, or pro and probably having some use of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's probably the only subject that people have anxiety in <laughs> at scale. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are research anxiety scale or measurements. Yeah. There are no Swedish anxiety scales or I, want, I don't know for uh, geography anxiety scales. They're not around. <laughs> no. So we need to turn that and make learning good at maths and then by adapting it to the child's knowledge where they are right now to so make sure we actually teach them at the right level and have them be 80 85 90 percent correct all the time 100 mm -hmm. wouldn't make sense then we should just skip them forward right yeah. but and we are trying to do that now because uh, using the storytelling in an adventure called count on me and it's uh, set in the realm of numberia mm -hmm. so you're the young you're set as a young mathematician to explore this world and like dive into it and use your mathematical powers to uh, um, pass the difficulties that you're, the problems that you're facing. Yeah. And eventually try to end the bad reign of the evil Prince Claw, who, who himself was uh, not good at maths early on. And you, you, get, you get helped by the, the old mathematicians that are around to help you. Mm -hmm. you sort of a Luke uh, Skywalker story, I would say. Okay. The, the classic story of uh, the hero's journey. Exactly, classic yeah. hero's journey story. So you, you went into your PhD with this very clear idea of what to do, and you wanted this, to explore this method. Like, is it actually the full cognitive behavior theory, or did you have like a little subset of an idea of what should work and that you want to try out? Maybe the latter, um, because CBT is usually for patients and you want to decrease some problem behaviors you have. Mm. That's the traditional way. There's other approaches where you want to improve behaviors as well, quality of life behaviors, like having friends or whatever. But there's also an even more <laughs> smaller niche called instructional design using behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. The B in cognitive behavior therapy, like the behavior part of it. And that is, uh, there's a one role model that I 
always looked upon. It's called Head Sprout. Head Sprout. And Head Sprout is a fantastic reading program created 20 years ago. They were successful. I think they have sold 300 million lessons online. They were acquired by a company. And of course, it was, it's because of the market, you have to go. <laughs> you have, because of the funding, you have to go to market. So they were selling it. And I got inspired by that. And I thought I would, I want to do the same. And nowadays we have even better technology. Mm. We have even more like graphic that we could put into it. So we decided to do that four years ago when I started my company. Okay. And then for, for this research project doing PhD, I mean, you, you had to figure out somehow where the market, i.e. The, the, the teaching environment currently is and where it should be based on the research and what you might find out later. And can you explain how big that gap was and potentially still is, I guess. So the question is, how big is the gap between research and the What we know and what we do. Like what we know, how it should be in an ideal case to the best knowledge currently and how it ah, okay. is currently or how it used to be back then. Yeah, I think uh, what we do know in these days is that we have to have a, have a large share of corrects when doing something. It has to be paced. So in my research, I could see that my students that were mid-performing or low-performing students, they were doing an average 10 math exercises per minute. Mm -hmm. And they played for 20 minutes. So in that time, they did 200 math exercises. And if you look at a low-performing kid, I mean, if they do two exercises in 20 minutes, that's probably average. Yep. <laughs> or if you have mid-performing that I also taught, um, they wouldn't be doing more than 10 in 20 minutes. That's a high pace, actually. Yep. <laughs> And we did 200. So I think that is a crucial ingredient, having a high-paced learning that is very um, at the atomic level of the learning. It's really, this is where you are. You need to build this granular skills and now even more skills on, the, on top of that. Yep. I think that what, that's what we know. And you have to be successful at a high rate when doing it. Okay. So high frequency and high accuracy, but not 100%, of course, then you already know it. Yeah, compared to... When a teacher stands in front, yeah, and then just explains things. And also, and current edtech products. If you look at, uh, there's a lot of introductions, or there's no introduction, so you just it's only trial and error. Mm -hmm. But if you have an introduction, if you teach the first phase of learning, that's the model phase. Then I modeled something for you. Okay, this addition compared to subtraction. Then I would like to you still to have eight to ten responses per minute while learning because otherwise you get disengaged. This is why TikTok is so successful. There's such a high response rate. Yep. You flick in a few seconds, <laughs> and you think, and you come and you make comments. So the interactivity has to be super high. Mm -hmm. That's the major takeaway I think, and what differs from current learning. Is that specific to, to kids or to all age groups? That they, they Specifically to kids, but I think uh, as you grow your attention span, if you're a 10 year old or if you're a 15 year old, it could be a problem solving thing. And you could do problem solving, but still you need to do maybe two minutes only on a problem to get that reinforcement yeah. that actually makes you going. But that requires a lot of good planning. So you have to have small tasks they give you frequent uh, responding. So that's what we're building, trying to build these small, small chunks of learning mm -hmm. where you are reinforced at your own level very frequently. Very frequently. Yeah. I mean, anyone who ever tried to entertain a kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Might know that. I mean, Roblox is, that's a lot of stimulus going on. You see a lot of things, and you have to respond 
to it all the time. So I think that's why the game part is, is good because you can actually have high rates of responding there too. Mm -hmm. And then doing your PhD, how did you, because you still had to do the, the four papers in Sweden for your PhD. And so you came to your supervisor directly, hey, like, this is what I want to do and I will not do anything else. Or I was, I mean, I can see it being a reasonably complicated question or approach to the supervisor. Yeah, my supervisor was quite concerned. He wanted me to be a PhD. I think he had good faith in me. Mm -hmm. Then I said, I want to do this. And he was like, that's very far part of what I'm doing. He was treating anorexia, mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's also very intrigued by learning itself. He uh, said, yeah, yeah, I should think twice about that. Then I got a free position that I, where I could choose my topic. So I actually did that. And he still decided to jump on. And Ata Gaderi is his name. He's a professor at Karolinska currently. Okay. Um, and he, uh, he, I, we were hesitant about that. I only have published uh, three papers so far, but uh, according to Ata, um, he's of course biased, but he said an intervention study, which I did, where you actually do an intervention, you measure the outcomes of a math, math app in my case, yep. that that's worth 10 publications in other, if you would do more regular research. So for me, it was never about doing many, uh, getting many citations or having many published papers, but actually I do get a lot of citations because it's a good paper and it's been, I mean, published in a top ranked journal in the published by the American Psychological Association. That is really hard to get into and I got in on my first try. That is that is great, but it took me seven years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, so you, you basically built your foundation for the app, like the actual Count on Me app later. Because yeah. I guess as a psychology PhD student, you might not have had the time to fully program a full game. Exactly. You know, and I had some extra funding coming from the uh, Socialstyrelsen, the Board of Health and Welfare in Sweden. Mm -hmm. I thought this was important, not from the educa any educational institution, because they suck, really. They are awful. Uh, they don't know how to go about evidence learning and effective teaching. But uh, from the social <laughs> institutions in Sweden, you can see an interest because they know kids are not doing well. And part of the integration, big part of the integration problems we have are due to lack of good education. So, um, yeah, we went for that, uh, that thing, do a real proper CBT app that teaches basic important skills. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to Deep Tech Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, why not give it a like or subscribe wherever you listen to or share the link on Twitter. It would help me out immensely. You'll be hearing back from me in two weeks with the second part of this interview with Martin, where we go into the details of how he actually built a Caribbean.